Good morning. You know, when uh, people can really massacre the Foth name. It can be Foth, it can be Froth, Fath. But my grandmother on my father's side was a German born in Russia, and her maiden name was Louisa Schiebelhut. I have always been grateful for Foth. I, I just... <laughs> And if you're a Shebelhut, come see me afterwards, because we're together, okay? <laughs> it was great being with your leadership team down in uh, Portland, like the, the weirdest city in the world, uh, this, <laughs> yesterday, and, and uh, if you haven't had cocoa or hot chocolate at Lovejoy's Cafe, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, I don't get a kickback for that announcement or anything, but it was just tremendous. There are some passages in Scripture that just do that to you. When you read the book of Philippians or the letter to the church at Philippi, it's a letter to a, to a, a church in a town that no longer exists. Philippi uh, used to be just north of Thessaloniki, Greece, in the northern part of Greece. If you go there today, it's just a pile of rubble. But back in the day when Paul was writing to them, it was, a, it was a crossroad trade route area. It was a place where Roman soldiers retired. It was an agricultural area, pleasant, not far from the Aegean Sea and so forth. And um, Paul had been there. He had spent time with these people. So when he starts out this letter, he says, every time I remember you, I, I remember you with joy. I pray for you. He had done a church plant with a woman, a businesswoman by the name of Lydia there some years before. Uh, he had been in their jail. That's what he usually did when he went to town. He went and just stayed in the jail and uh, <laughs> sort of like his holiday inn. And uh, he's actually writing from another jail, I think, as he writes this letter to the folks at Philippi. And theologians, scholars have dubbed this the letter of joy, the epistle of joy, because he, it, the theme is joy, and he comes down to the end of the letter, and uh, when you get to chapter 4, verse 4, and I know this was covered last week, but I just want to read verses 4 through 7, <clears throat> excuse me, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me read those two verses again. I'm speaking to Philippians 4, 6, and 7 today. So it reads this way, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, numbers of passages in Scripture sort of circle around something, circle around, and they land on what it is. This passage just goes bam, like that. And he just starts out, Strong. Now, Paul, being a Jew, understands that the that this first the way he says things reflects an expression of traditional Jewish piety, rejoicing in the Lord, praying to God, and being grateful. 
And these are expressed as imperatives because in the Old Testament, in keeping with Old Testament ideas of devotion and ethics, these are things that are inseparably tied to grace. Rejoicing in God, requesting of God, and being grateful to God. So the first step, the first thing he says, is a prohibition. What you're not to do. He says what we must not do is this. Don't be anxious about anything. This is, like, this is not like not a, a suggestion. He's not saying, you know, I've been thinking about this. Why don't you reflect on this with me? Or, you know, I had a couple of thoughts on this the other day. You might want to posit this as you're walking around having a Starbucks or wait. No, no. He just says, if you're anxious, stop it. We could save a lot of money in counseling stuff if we just, you know, you walk in, you got a problem. They say, well, quit. You know, just stop. Bob Newhart has a great, well, that's a whole other subject, but I, <clears throat> we, live in time, we live in a time of unspecified anxiety and stress. I think 24-hour news cycle is like too much. It's not just a 24-hour news cycle. It's a 60-minute 24-hour news cycle. Some of you are checking the news as I'm speaking to you. You're looking at that app that tells you what else blew up and what other country fell into the ocean and what, I mean, it's, our brains can't handle a 24-hour news cycle. Our brains can't handle the pressure that comes. And the question is, what does anxiety or angst or caring about what's happening tomorrow, what does it do? I love this line. This is not my thought. This is a borrowed thought. <clears throat> Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It simply empties today of its strength. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It just empties today of its strength. You know, studies show us that 98% of the stuff we worry about doesn't happen. Well, maybe it's because we worry about it. It scares it away. Maybe that's it. Don't, that's not a theological point. I was just kidding there. But we all know fear. We all know what it's like to be scared. I mean, babies have two essential fears. The fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. And then we just build on that over the rest of our lives. I like turned 71 a few weeks ago. And I've, I've built up all kinds of fears over the years. Just all, you know, people, you can Google or go on Wikipedia, which of course is true north. I'm just kidding on that. But you can go there and it will tell you 2,000 kinds of fears. Everything from fear of high places to crowds to peanut butter on the roof of your mouth. It's just, no, serious. I mean, my friend Mark Batterson told me that, so I know it's right. But, uh, but, that, but, the, but the idea is that we all get scared. And when we're kids, you're, you're afraid of what you don't know or what you haven't experienced and when you're a kid most of stuff you don't know so when you're a little kid you know I used to I used to lie in my bed at night in the fifth grade in Oakland California I've told some of you this who've heard me speak before and I used to call my mom at night it was real dark in my room in Oakland and it was just you know I'd sing every song I knew from church and school and then I'd run out of songs and I'd start calling my mom 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 and it was just a little bungalow craftsman's type, type 20s house. It wasn't that big. Mom was only like 30 feet away in the front room. And you say, well, why don't you just get out of your bed, go find your mom. Wait, wait. When you're in the fifth grade and it's dark in your room, you are not getting out of your bed. 
because the guy under the bed will grab your ankle. So you're not doing it. And if he doesn't get you, the guy in the closet will. So you're not, you're not, am I right here? This isn't in the Bible, but I'm just telling you that that's, that's how it is. I love the story of the little kid in a thunderstorm and there's a crack of lightning, you know, and a flash of lightning, a crack of thunder, and he starts calling his mom, Mom. And then another flash of lightning crack of there, Mom. Pretty soon she says, what is it? And she said, he said, I'm scared in here. She said, it'll be okay. It's just a thunderstorm. It'll go on by and flash of lightning, bam. She said, I'm scared, Mom. He, she said, honey, it's okay. Jesus is in there with you. Flash of lightning, crack of thunder. And the kid says, hey, Mom why don't you come in here with Jesus and let me go in there with dad? You know? <laughs> We're all there. We have fear. Had five college guys help me move some stuff a while back, Colorado State students in Fort Collins. And I said, you help me move, I'll buy your breakfast. Like guys will do almost anything for food. You know? So we haven't breakfast. And I said, tell me about your generation. He's a 20-year-old guy. He said, tell me about... And the first guy said straight out, he was a junior, he said, our generation is the most insecure generation in the history of the world. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you got all these options, you're techie savvy, you've got all this stuff, all these things you can do. And I, I said, you know, my sense is that you're almost paralyzed by that many options. And they, he said, yeah. And it isn't that everybody in that generation feels that way, but there's enough of that unspecified angst floating around, that we, we all get that. Anxiety and fear keeps me from being creative. It keeps me from being positive. It keeps me from enjoying life. It keeps me from having energy. And Paul says, stop that. Quit it. And I say, oh, well, okay. But how? And he gives me a plan, point two. The plan is what we must do. Point one is what we must not do. The plan is what we must do. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, prayer and petition and request are three very similar words. They all mean the same thing. You're asking. You say, well, God knows what... I know. He knows, but he wants you to identify it, apparently. Apparently, he wants us to come because when we come and say it it acknowledges utter dependence on God while at the same time expressing complete trust in him this is the God that invites us in you know I, I've I've talked about that lots of times in, in my life. This is the God that wants us to come to the party at his house. This is the God who has a place for us that he's created and he wants to take us there. He's the, but this is the God who comes to us. You know how some guys who are really studly guys, you know, they get confronted and say, hey, hey, you want some of this? Come on, I'll give you some of this. Here's the God who walks up and says, hey, you want some of this? Like, you want some peace? You want some joy? You want some raw power? Come on. I'll give you some of this. I'll even pay for some of this. This is the God who invites us in. Prayer and petition. I think we are hardwired for this. You've, many of you have heard me say this before. My friend Lloyd John Ogilvie, who was chaplain of the Senate for eight years, <clears throat> He said there's one prayer that God always responds to, saint or sinner, and that's when somebody says, God help me. 
As little kids, some of us learn, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Or if you come from Catholic tradition, you grew up saying what we call the Our Father. Our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. It's interesting that the United States Senate and the House of Representatives, every time they meet in session, either the chaplain or the House or the chaplain of the Senate has a prayer for our national leaders, prays for their day. And you can see it. If you watch C-SPAN, you can see the prayer given. And four times in my time in Washington, D.C., Chaplain Ogilvy had to be out of town. and said, Dick, would you, would you come and pray for the Senate? Well, a lot of times you're praying to almost an empty room because, you know, it's on C-SPAN, but you see a couple of senators, but they're just coming into session. But it's going around the world. And you have 90 seconds, and you have to write the prayer out. It's sort of vetted, and you can't say anything about foreign policy or name names or anything like that. And so the first time I did it, uh, Senator Strom Thurmond, the old man from South Carolina who died at 100 years old, he was in his early 90s. He was, he was Senate President Pro Tem. So he was responsible for introducing the prayer uh, that day. And so he came and said, Reverend, nice to meet you. And I said, well, thank you, Senator Thurmond. And he said, no, I'm going to take you up. Actually, I'd like to take your arm and we'll go up here on the dais and you stand right behind the the Senate Majority Leader's chair, the President's chair, actually, here, and you just say the prayer. And he said, and when you read that prayer, do not bow your head like that. Hold the prayer up, because if you bow your head, all C-SPAN will get is the top of your head. And I, you know, I thought I had a beautiful head. And he, <laughs> I, I never thought about my bald head when I prayed. I never thought about that until he said that. But we pray in all kinds of circumstances, and it's, it's instinctive. On 9-11, when the planes hit those towers, there were two kinds of calls being made from those upper floors where people were trapped. One was, God help me, and the other one was, honey, I don't think I'm going to make it. Instinctively, we go there. Three weeks after 9-11, Ruth and I invited Vern and Connie Clark to come to our house for dinner. Vern Clark was the son of my former boss when Ruth and I did a church plant at the University of Illinois back in the 60s. The superintendent for all Assemblies of God churches in that area was E.M. Clark, who was Vern's dad. Vern went to a Christian college in Missouri, and then he ended up going into the Navy. And by the time I met him, he was a three-star admiral. And on 9-11, he was in the Pentagon, and he was head of the whole Navy. He was chief of naval operations. 800,000 military civilian personnel. $120 billion budget a year, and he was just around the corner when that plane went in at 350 miles an hour. That was the side where Army and Navy intelligence units were, and on that morning, he lost 42 of his best and brightest young men and women like that. From the Pentagon hit, only five people were still in the hospital at the end of the week. You either walked away or you died. One of them was a young man on TDY, temporary duty, a young lieutenant by the name of Kevin been burned very badly and Vern and Connie had gone by to pray for him in the hospital. It's not very often you have the head of the whole United States Navy stop by and pray for you in the hospital. Three weeks after they came to our home for dinner because when you're at that level you're so much in the spotlight just to have a friend and be able to come over for chicken and a piece of apple pie or something was really terrific and 
So on the way over, the hospital called Vernon Connie and, and said, uh, uh, Lieutenant so-and-so has taken a turn for the worse. His organs have shut down. He has gone into a coma. We don't think he'll make it through the night. They told us that when they came in the door. We had dinner, and at the end of the dinner, they were getting ready to leave. I just said, well, why don't, why don't we have a prayer for Kevin here? Just We were standing in our little kitchen. We lived in a little cottage kind of house. We just stood in the kitchen. I said, why don't we pray for Kevin? So we just joined hands. And I said, Lord, you know Kevin and you know your plans for him. We don't, but, it, but if it's all the same to you, we'd like him to stay with us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And they left. 10 o'clock the next morning, the telephone in our home rang. I picked it up and it was Connie Clark on the phone and she was weeping. And she was saying, the hospital just called and Kevin woke up sat up and said, where am I? His organs are working. He's coming back. And two weeks later, he walked out of the hospital. It says, in your anxiousness, bring all your prayers and your requests and your petitions to God. That's how you need to do it. You can read, you can read the great writers on prayer besides the, the injunctions and encouragement from Scripture. You can read classics like E.M. Bounds on prayer or Andrew Murray, some of the great saints of the past, or somebody like Frank Laubach. Frank Laubach was a missionary in the Philippines in the 20s and 30s, and he, he wrote a little book on prayer, and he talked about walking down the street and praying scatter prayers as people pass you. You just toss a prayer out there, let them walk through it. Stuff like, you know, <laughs> crazy stuff. <laughs> on a train, praying at the back of a lady's head. Lord, let her just have it. Let's have a conversation. And she, in a few minutes, she turned around to a perfect stranger, Frank, and said, have you ever thought much about religion? I told that story in the first service and a, a gentleman a bit younger than I came up to me after service and said, we're here visiting our son. He said, I've been a missionary in Indonesia for 35 years, but when I was in college, Frank Laubach at 80 years old came and spoke in chapel. And he said, some people think I'm retiring, but I can't retire till one of you. And he said, he pointed straight at me till one of you takes my place. And he said, that morning, we were called to that part of the world. And Frank Laubach died four months later. I said, can I tell that like in the second service? He said, absolutely. Isn't it fun to be in the kingdom where you connect the dots and you never know who's there and what's going on? And so this idea of prayer is huge. The cool thing about prayer is you can pray in your mind. You can pray on the train. You can pray on a plane. You can you can pray right there or you can pray before you go to sleep or when you wake up or you, you know, anytime you can bring prayers and requests and petitions to God. And um, Ruth and I like to ride the train. And, you know, when you, when you ride on Amtrak, it's, it's like a time warp. It's like you're back in the 40s and 50s. I think I'm Cary Grant in North by Northwest. <laughs> Younger people are saying, who's that? I have no idea who that is. But the, the older dudes here get it. So you can just Google Cary Grant. You'll see. He's a very good looking guy. Anyway, they, we were on this train. And we were, um, we were put at breakfast. We were going from Chicago on the California Zephyr to Oakland, California. And we were, we were put with somebody. It's like a rolling bed and breakfast. They just put you wherever. And we sat down by this older couple, with this older couple, and they, they told us he was quite a bit older than she, probably in his mid-80s. And uh, they just said that they weren't married, but they'd been together for 30 years. That was like the first thing they said. So I'm thinking, that's going to be an interesting conversation. 
And it was, it was fun talking to him. And I, along the way, I just said, by the way, were you in World War II? And he said, I was. I said, what, what did you do? He said, I was a radio man on a B-17 bomber. I said, did you ever go to North Platte, Nebraska? Some of you have heard me tell the story about North Platte, Nebraska, this town of 12,000 in 1941 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. We started moving troops across the northern tier, the Union Pacific did. And in, in, in that time frame, a deal was worked out because a young drugstore clerk by the name of Ray Wilson, a young woman, 26 years old, had this thought, why don't we take snacks down to the guys coming through on the train? And out of that came this whole movement over the next five years where uh, women primarily from, from villages and towns 100 miles around North Platte would come and bring food that they had made or baked or whatever and, and feed the soldiers and sailors and servicemen and women coming through. And during the course of the next five years, six million United States servicemen and women got off the train for 10 minutes in North Platte, Nebraska and ran into this old defunct restaurant that the, that the uh, railroad line had given to these folks and they dubbed it the North Platte Canteen. And you'd run in and there was hot coffee and cold milk and fresh sandwiches and apple pies. And one lady said, my job in World War II was baking 10 angel food cakes from scratch with turkey egg whites in the back of that train station. Her husband and her boys were all fighting on the front and she was there doing her part. And every train that came through got a birthday cake. And, it, and they said, you know, somebody have a birthday and if they didn't, they just say, Sergeant Jones, today is your birthday. You know, and they just gave it to him <laughs> because they figured, you know. And um, when Bob Green interviewed people, he was the guy who wrote a book called Once Upon a Town, which is the story of North Platte. You can get it, download it or get it at Barnes & Noble. Once upon a town, Bob Green, when he interviewed these older guys, when he said North Platte, they would start weeping, oftentimes. And he'd say, why are you crying? And he'd say, you know, here we are, kids, 18, 19 years old. And we graduate high school in New York City on a Sunday, never been out of the city. Enlist on a Monday, and by Wednesday, we're heading across the Great Plains. And they said in the middle of the night, North Platte, Nebraska, next stop. And we jump off and run into this place with women who looked like our moms and our and our aunts and girls that looked like our sisters and our, and our cousins. And they had all this fresh food and hot coffee. And we, and, and we would take cups of coffee on the train. And they didn't have any paperware back in the day. And so they would take these porcelain mugs and put them off at the next train station. And the next trains coming through would do. Up to 32 trains a day, all hours of the night and day, came through North Platte, Nebraska. And everyone was met by these women. And he said, here we are, 18, 19 years old, as we run out to get on the train when the whistle blew, they'd hug us and whisper in our ears, God bless you, sailor. God bless you, soldier. We're praying for you. And we'd get back on the train, going to God knows where, not knowing if we'd ever come back alive. But for five minutes in the middle of the night in a place we'd never been with people we'd never met, somebody was kind to us. And they'd say, you know, we wake up in the middle of the night being mortared in a foxhole or in a bunker in France with mortars raining down and out of the darkness a voice would say, wouldn't it be great to be back in North Platte just for five minutes? So I told Bill, the older guy, that story. He said, well, I did go to North Platte, but not that way. I said, what happened? He said, well, our squadron in January of 43 took off for England from Wendover Air Force Base in Utah. We hit a blizzard over Nebraska. And we had to set down on a farm airstrip outside of North Platte. One of the planes crashed, but 20 of us landed safely. 
200 men and the townspeople came out in their cars and their trucks and picked us up and took us back to that train station and we walked walked in and it was just like you said Dick it was just like that he said are we in the book I said no he said we need to be in the book I said I you know I don't I'll, I'll talk to Bob Green the next time I see him you know I, I don't know we kept talking and I said how many missions did you fly when you got to England he said eight he I said what happened he said the first one we crashed in the English Channel crash landed in the English Channel within range of German guns in February of 43 and the Royal Air Force rescued all of us on the eighth mission we were shot down over Czechoslovakia and I spent the next 21 months in Stalag 18 so almost starved to death by the end of the war we were being guarded by 15 year olds and he said, but we became friends with our captors. He said, I'll never forget the day that I was standing talking to a guard. He had a machine gun and we heard the sound of tanks. And I looked up and across the river, George Patton's spearhead division, Sherman tanks rolled up on the far side of the river. And he said, the young German guard just handed me his machine gun and walked into the woods. And his, his wife looked at him and said, I've, I've never heard some of these stories, Bill. And he said, you never asked me. That was a breakfast. He said, could we have lunch with you? We said, sure. So we had lunch together. And so he started asking me what I do. And it wasn't nearly as exciting stuff. I said, well, you know, I have lunch and like breakfast with people and, you know, and <laughs> make friends, stuff like that in Washington. And, and I told him some stories. And one of them I told was about a guy who was a big lawyer in a big firm who came to one of these breakfasts for ambassadors, about 18, 20 guys. And, and he, he was just befriended by a fellow, but he just had a, he, you know, his heart wasn't toward Jesus. He just had a terrible mouth and he really liked women and he talked about it all the time. And every third word was just terrible. And, and one day he said, can I talk to you, Dick, afterwards? And I didn't teach this. I was just one of the guys and we went over, had a talk. And I'm telling my friend Bill this story. And he said, you know, I, I've started going with this Jesus follower woman. This, she follows Jesus. And I have this feeling that if I hang with her, that these other women that I have in various towns and cities around the world, I'm going to have to like not probably be with them. And I said, well, you know, and he, he, he said, uh, he, you know, he talked for about 40 minutes. And at the end, I said, uh, John, should we have a prayer? Should we do? And he wasn't used to praying, but he had been in a prayer thing with those ambassadors. They prayed once in a while. And he said, okay, but you need to know two things. I said, what's that? He said, I don't close my eyes and I don't hold hands with guys. I said, I'm good. And so we sat there with our eyes open and I just prayed. Six weeks later, he circled back around. It's getting more intense with this woman. And uh, we had the same talk and he said, boy, I just don't, if I'm with her, I don't think I probably can be with those other women. I said, well, yeah, you know. And at the end of the time, he said, do you think we should do that prayer thing again? I said, well, we could. We don't have to. He said, well, you think I should try? I said, that'd be great, you know. He said, okay. So we're sitting there, eyes wide open, and he starts out his prayer. Well, God, I know you're trying like hell to get me. And I, <laughs> and I start laughing. He said, is that okay? I said, that's, that's great, because the other words he used were terrible words, and this was like, like the better end of what he, how he talked. And, and he, he, started, he kept going with her, and he married her and started following Jesus, and they had a little boy when he was 51, and that little boy is now 12, 
And when I was with him not long ago, he said, you know, one of my favorite things, he told the group, one of my favorite things, he said, I do deals all over the world, but I come home and I put my boy to bed and read him a Bible story because he really likes that. And all of us sitting in the circle knew that John really liked that. That's what he liked because you learn about Jesus a lot of ways. And one of the best ways you learn about him is with kids' stories, you know, because we're all like kids that are scared at the core. And he doesn't want us to be anxious. And in that process of coming to him in that way, I told John that story, or told Bill that story, the guy on the train. I'm still on the train. <laughs> Some of you are wondering if I got off the train somewhere, but I'm still. <laughs> Ruth particularly was wondering if I got off the train. She praised, Lord, don't let him get off the train. He's, he gets wandering out there telling stories. We get to the end of the lunch and Bill looks across the table in the Amtrak dining car and says, Dick, before you go, could you, um, you remember that guy you told with the open-eyed prayer? I said, could you, uh, could you do one of those? Like here? I said, here in the dining car? He said, yeah. I said, absolutely. So there on the Amtrak, California Zephyr, somewhere on the western side of Nebraska. We sat with eyes open, with the countryside rolling by, talking to the God of all creation about our friend Bill and Sally here that we just met, and asking God to bless them and give them rich lives and, you know, redeem whatever and all of that. Because prayer works anywhere. When you come to God with your petitions and your prayers and your requests, he says, you want some of this? Come and get it. And what is it that we get? Well, when we come with grateful hearts, it says come, come with grateful hearts because grateful hearts means that I understand that anything we get is a gift. I have a friend who called me yesterday morning early from Washington, D.C. He's a Messianic Jewish kid. He's not a kid. He's in his mid-40s, but he's a kid to me. From New York City. His name's Max Finberg. He and I have a mutual friend who died the other night at age 44 of a brain tumor. And he called to tell me, to check if I'd heard. And we just chatted some. Whenever I see Max anywhere in D.C., I can see him at the White House. I can see him at the National Prayer Breakfast. I can see him on Capitol Hill. I can see him at a Starbucks. I can see Whenever I say, Max, how are you? He will always look at me and grin and say, I'm grateful. That's his standard response to me. Whenever I say, how are you doing, Finberg? He'd say, I'm grateful. What if God says, so how are you, Foth? And I said, I'm grateful. Grateful that there is a God who cares, who's willing to give me some of this. When I bring him my petitions and my prayers and my requests with a grateful heart. So the promise, the prohibition is stop being anxious. The plan is, let me show you how to do that. Prayers, requests, petitions to God with grateful hearts. And the promise is what we can count on and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul deliberately joins the peace of God with the exhortation to pray and trusting submission with thanksgiving. This is God's alternative to anxiety. Pray with grateful hearts and you find out you're not anxious. He knows about your stuff. He knows about my junk. He knows about things that I'm worried about that he knows. Apparently, it's not going to happen, so why waste your day on that? It's like having a credit card. You're just mortgaging your future, and it's not going to work. 
Now, hopefully your credit card will work, but I'm, ta I'm saying that this, this idea is that our prayer to the God who is totally trustworthy is accompanied by his peace. That when I come that way, his peace blasts into my life and it blasts past my understanding. Somebody says, all that stuff that you're under, you shouldn't be at peace. And you say, I, I know, I don't. And I'm not even on anything. I didn't smoke anything. I'm just at peace, you know. <laughs> I'm just at peace. Because his peace passes all understanding. It's an old gospel hymn. It was written by a man who lost several family members in an Atlantic Ocean accident and he went back on his ship and stopped at that place and wrote a song that many of you, especially older ones know, called It Is Well With My Soul. And it starts this way. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry about tomorrow. I wish I had a Bible with inflection or with maybe a video, just a little video shot of Jesus, a little YouTube shot so I could see his face when he was saying, what if he said that when he was grinning? <laughs> don't, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's got enough evil, it's got enough junk. Don't even sweat it. Just focus on today. Isaiah said it 700 years before Jesus, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast upon you because he trusts in you. Six weeks ago last night, I was a wedding at a wedding in Destin, Florida at a military recreational area south of Fort Benning, Georgia. It was the wedding for uh, Kirk and Leah Kirk Foster is a young guy that I met about eight years ago in Fort Collins, Colorado. Part of the teaching team, Ruth and I live in Fort Collins, Timberline Church. And at the end of one of the services, Kirk and his whole family, his parents, his sisters, his grandpa and grandma, they all came to the front. Kirk at that time was early 20s, I think maybe 22. He's a sergeant, an airborne army ranger. And he was being deployed the next day to Ramadi, Iraq, back in the day when Ramadi was just hellish. It was his third deployment at age 22. We prayed for him, there were tears, there were hugs all around. Kirk got married six weeks ago in Florida. He had just come back from his 15th deployment as a special ops army ranger being dropped in behind the lines for a month or three and living off the land and doing what they do. And um, after the ceremony, when they had the reception, they had a, a dance, their little dance, and his mom had a dance with him. And I'm watching this. And Kirk was sort of closed mouth. He didn't tell me much about any of his achievements or accomplishments. And, and they started playing this song that they were dancing to. And it was a song by Ozzy Osbourne, who's not like a gospel writer. <laughs> and it was a song called Coming Home. And the first time he came back from Iraq and he was safe, he put that on his phone and played it for his mom from the East Coast just to let her know. <clears throat> they started playing the song and she welled up and she put her head on his chest on this side because there wasn't room on this side because on this side were all the ribbons and medals that I didn't know about. Three purple hearts, 
been wounded three times. Three bronze stars, one with a V for valor, and two silver stars. And he's 29 years old. These are the young men and women who go in harm's way so we can do this. And so they did the little dance and we went back to have dinner and I sat between the brigade chaplain who had done the service and a couple of folks from Madisonville, Kentucky. When you walked in to sign the guest register, there were three pictures of young men in military gear. There were three of Kirk's closest friend who had died in the line of duty who were in his squad. And the folks we were sitting next to from Tennessee were the parents of one of those boys. His name was Ricky, and he had been killed four years prior. But they wanted to come to Kirk's wedding because they had all been together. And during the course of the dinner, I turned to them. I said, could I ask you a personal question? And they said, sure. I just said, how are you doing? How are you doing? And the father looked at me as a big old Kentuckian. I said, Tennessee there, Kentuckian. He looked at me and he said, Ricky had Jesus in his heart, so we're good. And his mother grinned at me and said, and that means we get to see him again. When you bring him your prayers and your petitions and requests with grateful hearts, he gives you peace that passes all logic, all understanding. Because that's what he is about and that's who he is.